If you would, take your Bible and turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Some of you thought I was going to say Lamentations chapter 5, didn't you? It was a close call. There's just something about being in Lamentations on Resurrection Sunday that seemed a little bit off to me. So here we are in John chapter 3. I greet you this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord who is this moment victorious over sin, who is risen and who reigns at the right hand of God the Father. And it is in His name that we gather today. What a joy it is in knowing all of the works that He has done. Friends, there is nothing in the current culture that could captivate the human heart if it is rightly attuned more than all of the narratives of the works of Christ in the Word of God. Amen. Uh, what I know for sure about my own heart, maybe not about yours, uh, but I know this about mine. It is that I am not nearly as thankful as I ought to be for the resurrection and all of the promises that are there attached. And in light of that, I do know something of our culture. And it is that our culture, if you want to know why, and fill in whatever problem that we endure in our day, why those things are, it is because we don't rejoice in what Christ has done. There's nothing more lamentable, I would contend this morning, than what many of us will hear on the radio or on the television screen or on the internet about the resurrection. There is a resurrection that will be proclaimed today all throughout our land that is not the biblical resurrection. Uh, the resurrection that will be proclaimed is not a resurrection of a divine miracle, but merely a resurrection that leaves us with a moral example. Jesus will not be proclaimed in so many places in our nation today, and I believe that this is great blasphemy as the conquering Savior, but merely as a moral example. Now, nobody's going to say it that way necessarily. What they will do is they will come and say uh, uh, something to the effect of, well, if you have such and such problem, let's say it's debt or it's uh, oppression or it's some uh, relational struggle, uh, what will end up being heralded this morning is that the resurrection is something we can look to to see that there is great power that we in our own strength can overcome those lesser problems. Friends, that proclamation is nothing more than a liberal gospel. And it's soul-crushing when taken to its nth degree. Jesus is not... If you hear nothing else I say this morning, hear this. Jesus is not the example for our faith. He is the object of our faith. He is the One who bled and died for you and me that we would be delivered not from the current problems that we face, but from the eternal wrath of Almighty God. See, many today will proclaim a gospel of be better, but we don't need to be better. We need to be set free from sin and death. We need redemption. And the resurrection is the miracle that tells us that we have hope of a redemption in the death, burial, and resurrection of the eternal Son of God. So let's look this morning 
at Luke chapter, I think I said three, Luke chapter two, oh, sorry, good heavens, folks. We are all kinds of all over the place. John chapter two, the Lord will humble us in His own way. John chapter two, verse 13, if you would rise to your feet and honor the inspired, inerrant Word of God. John writing here under the inspiration of the One who gives us breath even to this moment. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And He, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make My Father's house a house of trade. I think the better interpretation there is a den of thieves. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume Me. So the Jews said to Him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But He was speaking about the temple of His body. When therefore He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this, and they believed the Scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His, names when, in his name when they saw the signs that He was doing. But Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to them. Because He knew all people, and indeed no one to bear witness about man, for He Himself knew what was in man. Beloved, this is God's Word to you and I today. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence this morning, acknowledging the weight of our own depravity, acknowledging the reality that we need You, uh, an atoning sacrifice in our place to bear the wrath of our sin there on the tree. And Father, we come so thankful this morning that the resurrection is the seal and the sign that the Father has received Your sacrifice. And so Father, this morning I pray that as we come, You would write in, in our hearts the eternal truths found here in John chapter 2. I pray, Father, that we would not leave this place without having been changed. If there's one here that doesn't know You, that they would come to a genuine saving faith in You by the power of Your Spirit. And for those of us who are in Christ, that we would leave not having a heart that is less enamored with the resurrection, but that we would leave rejoicing that our hearts would burn within us with gratitude for all that You have done. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. You see, the resurrection is really couched in our need for a suffering Savior. When we come to verses 23 through 25, we see something that is startling here. The, the issue here 
is the desires of the hearts of men. Let's read those verses again together. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, after having cleansed the temple, many people believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus was, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him. For he himself knew what was in man." We find Jesus here having performed many miracles. And in fact, in John chapter 20, at the very end of this gospel, we find in verse 30 a declaration of why John has written this particular book. And he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Uh, We are here found in the early chapters of John's Gospel that declare the many um, miracles that Jesus had done. Not all of them exclusively, but many of them that we might believe. There are seven signs, and some would argue eight, and some would argue nine. So let's just agree there are many signs. From chapter 1, verse 19 on through chapter 12, we have in chapter 2 the changing of the water into wine, and that's already happened when we come to these verses in John chapter 2. We have the healing of the official son in chapter 4, the healing of the paralytic at Bethesda in chapter 5, the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, Jesus walking on the water also in chapter 6, the healing of the blind man, that one who was blind from birth in chapter 9, and the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. Now, these signs, John tells us, are not inconsequential. They are given that we might believe. If we read John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, we get the full sense. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. That's why... These three verses are so arresting. Jesus here in verse 24 does not trust any of those who had seen His miracle. Jesus doesn't entrust Himself to those who in... And some of you might say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't verse 24 say that that these people... Excuse me, verse 23, that they believed in Him? And the answer is yes. They believed, but it wasn't a saving belief. Martin Bucer points out rightly, faith is twofold. Christ would have entrusted Himself to those who had true saving faith. A faith that makes children of God. That is to say, they would acknowledge that He was a prophet with the name Son of God, but they did so without having their souls renewed. Friends, these people that had supposed belief are ultimately the same group of people that we find in John chapter 19 crying, crucify Him, crucify Him. These people believed, but they did not believe with changed heart. They marveled that the belief here is a mere marveling at the benefits of Christ without yielding to the authority of Christ in their lives. So it is. In so many lives, in our own nation and in our own time. Friends, I have prayed 
That it would not be said of any one of you on the day of judgment that you have nothing more than a faith which looks to the personal benefits of Christ without actually knowing Him. Without actually rejoicing in Him. Another man says, as the glory of Christ was increasing because of His teaching and miracles so little by little, Envy and malice of the religious was swelling throughout this time. These were religious people who Jesus would not entrust Himself to. And when He called them out and He confronted them, they would crucify Him. Friends, vain religion does not seek the glory of Christ. It only seeks the benefit of Christ. And in my life, I've seen many people who say they believe, but when the time of testing comes, they prove to be like the seed that is sown on rocky soil. And they shrivel and they fall away. It's interesting. This morning, I got the Wall Street Journal, because I'm an old man at heart. And in the review section, this article could, if you would have thought that I read this before I wrote this sermon, uh, but the review article is entitled by Francis Rocha, Our Many Jesuses. And I would encourage you to go read this particular article. It, it, it really encapsulates the problem of our day. Uh, the, the problem is this. That far too often we skew Jesus to fit the mold of what we want in society or in our lives for our own glory without ever really contending with the real Jesus. And, and part of what Roca points out in this article is that around Easter time, there Now that's interesting. Uh, Googling of who Jesus is and that this this year in particular, there's an increase of that reality because of the He Gets Us campaign. People are more uh, aware of Christ at this particular time because this campaign that is flooded. How many of you have seen the He Gets Us campaign? A lot of you, I'm sure. And it, the, the He Gets Us campaign shows Jesus uh, amongst angry protesters and then uh, he, he kind of comes through that particular time and, and what He's trying to demonstrate is that He doesn't want us to hate one another. But as it turns out, the He Gets Us campaign is nothing more than a rehashing of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s liberal campaign uh, or, or reduction of the Gospel. And, and, and the people that are, are, are behind the He Gets Us campaign have been asked their, for their theological belief, and they will say, well, we believe that Jesus was truly God and, and, and truly man, but what we want to do in portraying Him in our ad campaign is just His humanity. Friends, that's liberalism. 
Reduce everything that is supernatural. Take away all of the miracles and merely set Jesus up as a moral example that we can follow so that we will have a better life in our particular day and age. Now, this article goes on not just to deal with the, the, the um, we, He Gets Us campaign, but with other varying views politically and otherwise. And what he's really doing is he's painting the picture of what is going on in verses 23 through 25 of John chapter 2. And that is that many people will come to Jesus and they will say, ah, there is a good man. There is a, a fine teacher. There is an individual on whom I can pin my cause. And friends, to do so, and I encourage you, again, read this article. It gives you a picture of what we really face as Christians in seeking to, to disciple and seeking to evangelize because many people, if you ask them, do you believe in Jesus, they will say yes, but the, that, that's not the question anymore. The question must be, who is the Jesus in whom you believe? Why did He come? Why did He die? Why did He suffer? And why today is He risen? And quite frankly, a great question for most people is, is He risen? Because the declaration of liberal theology is that the resurrection didn't happen. We'll get to more of that in a minute. But here, friends, for you and I, we believe that the resurrection is a historical reality that really sets, is set in the, in, the, in the background of human depravity. Friends, we deserve at this very moment nothing but the wrath of God. When Adam fell, we all fell into sin. We all have turned away from God. We all go our own way. We are not morally well people apart from the regenerating and saving power of God. Instead of giving us our due penalty though, in our depravity, in the early chapters of Genesis, we see that God made a way that His people would come and worship Him. That The whole Old Testament sacrificial system. If, friends, if you ever hear in our culture an individual who claims to teach the Bible that says the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament, turn that person off. That is nothing more than a Martian heresy that, that, that says there is this duality in God. God has always been a redemptive God bringing His people to right worship for His own glory and for their good. That's always been the story. And yes, the sacrificial system was messy, it was bloody, it was gory. And why? Because our sin is heinous before a holy God. The question then has to be this. What does humanity do? Because some people will say, I don't know that I agree with that. I think people are pretty good. Alright? Well, in light of the reality that we sinned against a holy God and God instituted a sacrificial system whereby His people could come back and rightly worship Him, what did they do with that kindness? Look at verses 13 and 14. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, He found those who were selling oxen, sheep, pigeons, and the money changers who were sitting there. What lost humanity does with religion apart from the moving of the Spirit of God and the grace of God is we profane the worship of God and we make it about our own advantages and not about His glory. The problem here in John chapter 2 is that they were profaning the temple. 
And friends, this is the problem in every age. The house of God is turned into a den of robbers, robbing God of His glory that He is rightly due, that we might feel better about ourselves. And that's the danger of the liberal gospel. You're not that bad. Friends, if you're not that bad, then answer this question, why the cross? You are that bad. But our glorious Savior was willing to pay the sacrifice. I see this all the time in pulpits where people proclaim a gospel that deludes sin down and robs God of His glory. What ends up happening in the pulpits of America today, and I would, I would contend more than any other time in human history, is we bring God low and we raise man up. And the, that is not the gospel. The true Gospel leaves God as the one high and holy and acknowledges man in his sinful state. So in light of this profaning of the worship of God, what does Jesus do? Now, most people take verses 15-17 through and they make them primarily about righteous anger. There are entire books that are written about what righteous anger is and they're couched in these particular verses. Well, well, I'm not saying it's less than righteous anger, but there's something more than righteous anger in verses 15 through 17. Let's read them together. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of all, all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So what was he doing here? Jesus being consumed for the glory of His Father and the glory of right worship. What He is doing here was done in righteous anger, but it was more than righteous anger. The point is that He is consumed with the pure right worship of God. The purity of worship of the people of God is at stake here. And Jesus shows up after having done His first recorded miracle in this Gospel, and He holds nothing back. Because our Savior was not merely sent to this earth so that we could eke our way out of hell. Our Savior was sent that purity in worship would be rightly restored. He goes on later to say that His Father is seeking those who would worship Him in spirit and in truth. Not just on Easter and on Christmas, but every day of their lives. That that God's people would be gathered around His Word, rightly worshiping. Now there's something here that we must think about. I have to ask the question, what in the world was Jesus as He is aiming for the purity of the worship in this passage? How does He go about that? Does Jesus do what many modern religionists who call themselves Christians do and and look at the Barna research polls and tailor their sermons to the felt needs that are in the pew? Does Jesus come in to the temple and and say, you know, I I need to gather up all the, the, the religious leaders and ask them what they feel about worship? They obviously have some feelings that that they need to make some money off of this particular uh sacrificial system and so How they feel should rule and reign. He doesn't do that at all, does He? 
Because here's the reality, friends. In a religious moment where you will be told in every area of our culture that your feelings are supreme, in this text, the feelings were the problem. And they always are. If this was the place where people were going to gather, and if this is the place where they were going to be cleansed, and they were going to have true fellowship with God through the sacrifices that God had instituted, then ultimately, you have to ask the question, what is it that brings us to right worship? How do we pattern our worship correctly? And the answer is found in verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written. Those simple words tell us how we are to order our worship. We are not given freedom just to worship according to the dictate of our feeling. Here His disciples remembered everything that Jesus was doing was in accordance with the Word of God. Friends, the worship of God must be regulated by the Word of God under the power of the Spirit of Almighty God. We don't make gatherings that suit ourselves. We shouldn't just give lip service to being a Christian and then come in and say, well, well, I like music that does this, or I like preaching that is this, or or whatever the case may be. The, The gathering of the true church is a gathering that is not necessarily about style and form. It's a gathering around substance, and that substance is found only in one place, and that is the Word of the triune God. See, the error of this people in this time was that they were living according to the flesh. Not much has changed. See, what we have in this passage is more about one who has authority. It's more about Christ's authority than it is about His anger. We marvel at the anger. And and, and isn't it true in our cultural moment and even in this He Gets Us campaign that is a liberal nightmare? that there is this seeming, well, Jesus would never want us to be angry. Jesus is angry every day at the profaning of His name and at the mockery that, of what many churches call worship today. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to be zealots and we have to be over the top, but there is a right indignation over and against a wrong worship. And Jesus here is not just demonstrating blind anger. He is demonstrating that He has authority to purge the temple. His miracles were, were starting to come to the forefront to show that He was the Son of God. And He was doing here what is according to God's Word. You see, our greatest need is that we have a broken relationship with God. We have violated His law. We are depraved, sold under sin. And Jesus is the only one who had a passion rightly for the glory of God and a mission to save His people from their sins. Jesus uniquely is the one who has the authority and who has the purity to accomplish redemption on your part and my part. Who Jesus is is really the focus of the cleansing of the temple and the fullness of this text. And it's couched in, well, in the religious crowd saying, well, we want to see some miracles to validate this. Now, as we think about the miraculous, we need to, we need to make sure that we're not thinking about miracles the way that the world does. Because what, what has already been said here in, in verse 
23 is that some believed, but it wasn't a saving belief. They had, looked, they had seen the miracles of Christ and what they concluded was, wow, Jesus must be a really great guy. God is, in fact, Nicodemus will say in chapter 3 that, well, we know God is with you. You see the subtle difference there? No, no, no. God wasn't with Jesus. Jesus was God. Is God. We, we dare not have the world's view of miracles often just wanting to revel in the glory of the miracle without understanding the meaning of the miracle. So what we need to do is we need to come and consider quickly, and I'll try not to bore you with this, some different views on miracles. First, I want you to have in mind the deistic worldview. The deistic worldview teaches this, that God created the universe, and then like a watch, I don't think an Apple watch, because never mind. But like a watch or a clock, He winds up the the universe, and then at the beginning of time, He just kind of set it free. He set it in motion. There are laws that govern everything that happens throughout nature. And and so everything in the deistic worldview, God is hands-off, standing back. He is aloof. And everything that we experience is regulated by pure logic and reason. Some of our founding fathers would be called deists. And if they believed in miracles at all, many of them didn't believe in miracles. They would take exacto knives and cut the miraculous passages out of their Bible. If they did believe in miracles... Then, then, then what they would say is this, in a deistic worldview, miracles are accomplished by an impersonal force of a God that is far away. And they really aren't sure, even in their understanding of miracles, that you can ever know the purpose of the miracles. Now, pantheism goes on to see God as connected with the totality of nature. So there isn't anything that really can come from outside of nature acting on the natural world of the earth because God is part of the earth. And so any miracle is merely just some overworking of God being part of His creation in a pantheistic sense. Then you have idealism. Idealism is a perspective that asserts the reality uh, that reality is indistinguishable and inseparable from perception and understanding. That the reality is a mental construct closely connected to ideas. What what this view does is it breaks down miracles to nothing more than a phenomenon. And if you see one phenomena, that there's got to be something. That there's got to be something else that is phenomenal behind it, but but there is not a God that is behind it. Now we come to what is most important, and that is the Christian view. The Christian view says this. It's why it's important to understand the resurrection in its context of all of the Bible. The, The Christian worldview says there is a God, and that God has created everything that we see. He has created the natural order, but in light of our sin, the order of nature is now fallen and cursed, but there are still laws that govern in the natural realm, but yet God is not far off from His creation. He sustains and He is sovereignly ruling, as we sang this morning, reigning over all things. So miracles... Then, 
this is important, in the Christian worldview are not detached from the natural happenings of the earth. And let's think about this for a moment. If we look at the feeding of the 5,000, we see the intermixture of the natural and the supernatural, don't we? There were 5,000 people. And they had a natural hunger. And the fish and the loaves were a natural response to that hunger. Right? Well, the miracle was that Jesus multiplied what was there to feed those who had a natural appetite. God, when He works a miracle, is working inside of the confines of the nature that He has already constructed. And, and this is where the crux of the Christian worldview of miracles really comes into focus. There is no separating of the natural and the supernatural. In the Christian worldview, it all belongs to God. Every ounce of... Friends, we would, I, I think, consider with more awe just the normal happenings of life if we had a better understanding of the Christian biblical worldview. There is no difference, there is no separating of the fact that God is sovereignly working whether it's supernatural or it's natural. I mean, here, here's kind of the idea. The, the Christian believes that God created everything into existence ex nihilo. That is, out of nothing God spoke it and it came to be. Now the liberal theologian says, well, that may be true. Increasingly, they would say that's not true, but where they started, that may be true. But then as we move into the New Testament, uh-oh, there are these miracles here. We've got to get rid of those because there's no way that a modern mind can accept these miracles. Well, friends, if we can't accept these miracles, we definitely aren't going to accept that He created the world and everything in it and sustains it to this moment. I mean, once you get to the reality that thousands of years of human history and rebellion against His holy name have been held in His hands, the miracles are not a stretch. The, the, the God of the heavens who spoke everything out of nothing, making a few extra fish? Is that that grand? It is grand in the sense that we can't do that. We have no supernatural ability. But it's not beyond the God of the cosmos. It's not beyond the One who gives us life in every sphere of our being. So in the natural, we have to ask the question, does, does God act? In the natural, ordinary happenings of life, does God act? Is He sovereign over those things? And the answer is yes. He is the primary cause, but in the natural order, He always uses secondary causes. Let's take, for example, crops. Mimi has started planting tomatoes. Where's Mimi? Is she in here? There she is. Mimi has started planting tomatoes. And what is it going to take for those tomatoes to grow in the natural realm? Well, it'll take sunlight, it'll take water, it'll take soil, it'll take a whole lot of work on Mimi's part. And all of that are the secondary causes, but ultimately God is the one who works over and above those natural means to bring about that delightful bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. God works in nature. Now, we could also look at the reality of our, our own natural birth. Children come into the world, and Psalm 139 tells us that we are in, intricately woven together in our mother's womb. That is, that God is the primary cause of us having life. 
But we also understand, and I'm not going to get into a biology lesson this morning, I'd embarrass myself and you. But we understand that there are secondary means to the procreation of children in this earth. You see, in the natural way, there, are, there is the primary means of God, and then there is the secondary means by which He works. And just so we can see clearly, the secondary means are things He's created as well. But what happens in miracles is that God intervenes personally, and there is no secondary means. There's nothing but the Lord intervening and doing the work of creating the miracle in that particular instance. And He doesn't work, as the deist would say, impersonally or immaterially. What a miracle turns out to be in the Christian mind is nothing more than a creative work of God. When God does a miracle, what He is doing is not that different from what He did in the moment that He spoke the earth into existence. All these miracles work within a framework of nature by God's own hand. It doesn't come from an impersonal force, but depends on the very character of God. Isn't that amazing? When we look at the miracle of the resurrection, when we look, I I, I have family members that will say, does it really matter if we believe in the virgin birth birth of Christ? Absolutely, because God is displaying His glory in that moment and what He is showing us in all of the miracles that He brings working in nature, in creation, is that He is glorious, He is merciful, He is good, and His character is about the redemption of souls. So the resurrection then, as it turns out, is a miracle for sinners. Now this is very important that we consider verses 18 through 21. Read them with me here. So then the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It's taken us 40 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered and said uh, what that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Remember, Jesus is the one working by miracles to show us his authority. Here, the Jews ask for a sign. Jesus says, I'll give you one. Three days I will be in the grave, and then in the resurrection I will show the most visible miracle ever. This is the miracle that Paul says, if it's not true, if the resurrection is not real, then Christians of all men are to be most pitied. You see, the whole point of this text is that for worship to be rightly ordered, it takes a miracle of Almighty God. For worship to be God exalting, God Himself has to act because man has fallen so far. And this is exactly what God did without any secondary causes in the resurrection of Christ. He gives us a reason to give glory to His name. 
Jesus ultimately knew in this moment when these Pharisees, these religious crowd, said, come on, preacher man, show us a miracle to show us your authority. Jesus knew He could have given them any miracle that they wanted in their flesh, but that wouldn't solve the problem because the problem wasn't merely that they hadn't seen the right outward manifestation of a miracle. The problem was that their heart was depraved and unregenerate. And that apart from a miracle of God, they would never believe. Ultimately, friends, we can do this. We can work the resurrection in reverse and we can see the Gospel with absolute clarity. The the Bible teaches us that we are condemned in Adam under the law. Everything in nature is cursed and that includes our own human nature. And that's what Jesus is pointing to when John or John is pointing to when he says that Jesus himself knew what was in man. He knew that their hearts were depraved. And so the only solution then here's the question. Is there anything in nature if all of it is condemned, if all of it is depraved, if all of it is marred by the fall, is there anything in nature that can bring about salvation? And the answer is no. It would take God acting unilaterally outside of nature to bring redemption to a fallen condition. Friends, that's a reality in your life and my life. Without the miracle of the resurrection, without the miraculous intervening of Almighty God, none of us would be saved. And that's the entire point of a passage of Scripture that follows this narrative that is argued over and over and over. Would you read it with me? John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to Him, Rabbi, that is teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Do you see his low view of who Jesus is? For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't even see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel at what I said to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up 
that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the only Son of God. Beloved, Jesus did many miracles. And Nicodemus and the religious people knew they were miraculous. Nicodemus says so here. But ultimately... The problem isn't that there weren't enough miracles. I heard somebody recently ask, well, if Jesus did more miracles, then why aren't they written down in the, in the Bible so that maybe more people would come to Jesus? Friends, every single one of His miracles could be recounted, but there's a problem in the human heart, and that is that it doesn't desire the glory of Christ, it desires the benefits of Christ. And so, when the glory of Christ is revealed, the nature of a human being doesn't rejoice, but it rather seeks the destruction of that glory. See, as it, as it turns out, what I want you to see in the resurrection is for Christ to be risen from the dead, it took God unilaterally reaching down into creation to bring Him to life. And as it turns out, to cleanse our souls from sin... Well, it takes the very same thing. Our salvation is miraculous in the same sense that Jesus' resurrection is miraculous. Our salvation depends in, upon our nature in no part. You see, Jesus isn't the example of our faith. Again, He's the object of our faith. The crux of the question in verse 18 is those who believe and those who don't believe. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever doesn't believe is already condemned. And so the question has to be, well, how is it that we come to genuine saving belief? Not the kind of belief that we find in verse 23, where we merely believe in the outward sign of His miracles and we, we, we applaud Him as a good teacher, but the genuine type of conversion where we place all of our faith, everything that we are, all of our hopes of eternity on Christ Himself. How does that happen? And Jesus has already told Nicodemus, it happens by a miraculous work of Almighty God. What is a miracle? A miracle is God acting without any secondary cause for His own glory and for the good of His people. Our salvation is a such miracle. And what in light of that should we do but rejoice in Him? Beloved, here's the question I want to leave you with this Easter morning. If our salvation really is miraculous, and it is the God of the heavens who brings to pass that salvation, then will He fail to bring about salvation to anyone He intends to save? Let's pray.
Father God, we come into your presence this morning acknowledging that so many people take your gospel and they turn it into mere religion. They take the miraculous reality that we are all born dead in trespasses and sins. And they turn it into something that we can make decisions about and that we can, uh, we can deliberate over and that we can ultimately affect as the primary cause. But Father, the glory of Your church is that You are redeeming a people for Your own name's sake. And You are doing it miraculously in every generation. Father, we are so thankful that You have given us the, the, the sign that You have accepted the death and burial, the, the atoning sacrifice of Your Son. So Father, today we stand in awe of all that You have done throughout history to bring about our redemption. We're not trying in our own strength to be good moral people. We're not trying in our own strength to bring about our own salvation. We merely look and rest upon Christ and believe that He is sufficient to bring about the redemption of those that You have given Him. So Father, I pray that if there's one here that doesn't know You, You would do a miracle even in our midst. You would take their heart of stone, a heart that desires the things of this earth, that You would regenerate it. That You would give it new life. That would turn in repentance and faith, believe in Your Word, and seek Your glory. In Christ's name, Amen. If you would, stand and we'll sing the fairest Lord Jesus.